absolute honor to be with you this morning, and I believe that God wants to meet with us here in the next few moments, and uh, in spite of yesterday's game, <laughs> whew, can we just take a moment to pray? That was rough. Um, my wife and I just moved to Buffalo about a, a year ago, actually this month, grew up in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm a huge Penn State fan, so I'm grieving with you, sharing in the suffering and, uh, and believing so there's good news on the other side, but I'm um, thrilled to be here with you. And excited for what God's doing at this church. And that's not just uh, religious jargon. I believe that God's involved here just walking around. Somebody said, are you, are you speaking today? Because you're, you know, you're wandering around. I'm a wanderer and I'm a people watcher. So I wander around and I watch people, but I can feel the momentum of what God's building here. Can anyone else sense that? You, can be- you believe that God's in this. That this isn't just a good idea, this is God's leading, that God's doing something here. And I can see that, and I'm not just saying that for the sake of saying it, I can see it walking around the, the different types of people that are engaged already and what God's doing here. And I believe that God's going to be gracious in giving continued vision as the Lord leads. This morning, though, if you have your Bibles, turn with me very quickly to Matthew chapter 16, this really interesting passage. Jesus is in uh, Caesarea Philippi. And he's, he's walking to a specific place because it's interesting that when Jesus asks us something, it's not only that he's, um, he doesn't just ask us a question. We have to understand where he's asking it. And it's really interesting. Jesus, with his disciples, takes them to this specific place. And we can read over it so quickly, but it's Caesarea Philippi. And he brings them there and he asks them a question, who do men say that I am? Now, when God asks us a question, I I think you'd agree that he's not looking for information. He's asking us a question because we lack understanding. Right? I'll say it like this. Now, I've been married, uh, it'll be five years in February, and I'm a complete novice and I know nothing, all right? So that's that's my disclaimer about marriage. But the one thing that I have really locked down is this, all right? It took me some time. But depending on which way my wife was going to the kitchen... Uh, I knew she was either asking a question to get information or asking a question because I didn't understand. Let let me explain. If she was walking to the kitchen and she'd say, Jared, did you do the dishes? That's a legal question. That's fair. But oddly enough, she would ask the same question walking from the kitchen. Jared, did you do the dishes? I'm like, that's not a question. You already know the answer. But you're asking, why? Because... She's asking a question not because she's lacking information, but I don't know that she knows, right? So when God, in Christ, asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? He's not asking because he's uh, some egotistical narcissist who, who needs information to go like, I don't know what are people saying. He's asking for a specific purpose. Do you agree? So who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then, then Jesus turns and says, but who do you say that I am? Isn't, isn't that wild that God gives you and I and us together the ability to define who he is in our lives? Think about the profound nature of that, that God is not trying to strong arm himself into society. That God is not trying to get attention because personally I thought the best time that God could have really made himself known was during the Super Bowl a few years ago. He could have could just kicked off Janet Jackson at halftime, right? Covered her up and then just like showed up and like, here I am. I, I thought that would have been a good time to reveal himself just personally, but, but, but God's not interested in strong arming himself. 
So Jesus in another time would say that, that my kingdom's not like the Gentiles that's lorded over people. I'm not coming with a kingdom that's, I'm coming with a kingdom of service to lift people, not to come and oppress people. So we have this incredible opportunity, you and I individually and together, to actually define how God is engaged in our life. That's, that's profound. So Peter, who I love, looks back at Jesus and, and strongly says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks back and says, Peter, or Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father in heaven gave it to you, and, and you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And it's this victorious thing. And what's amazing, I told you just a minute ago, is knowing that where Jesus says this, it's not that he just says this at some random place. He's, he brings them to Caesarea Philippi to an actual place called the Grotto of Pan, which is this altar, this place where they'd make uh, demonic sacrifices sacrifices to foreign gods. And Jesus brings them to this place that's called the gates of hell. You can Google this. And he brings them to the darkest place on earth and says, who do you say that I am here? Because it really doesn't matter who we say Jesus is when everything's good. We need to know who he is when everything's dark. He brings them to the dark place. And he says, at this altar of pagan sacrifice, this is where I'm going to build my kingdom. And you think, wow, what spirituality is displayed in that moment that Peter got this victorious thing right? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. But I, you know what's amazing about that? Is that this is the only time that Jesus publicly affirms Peter. One time. And just a few verses later, Jesus looks into Peter's eyes and says this incredibly encouraging thing that your wife has said to you many times. Get behind me, Satan. I may be the only one. I'm feeling a little lonely on the stage here. That's all right. Talk about going from a high to a low. You, that, that you're on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You go from that to get behind me. Talk about a high to a low. But what's amazing about this, and we so subtly slip over this and miss it entirely, and this messes up our lives as Christians and the corporate life of a church, is that we make Christianity about us about what we do right, what we have together, the formula, and if I can build this thing, everything works out. But Jesus says this very clearly to Peter. Peter, flesh and blood didn't give this to you. My father gave it to you. In other words, hey, you got the answer right, but you kind of cheated anyways. Yeah, you have right answer, but this thing's not about you. See, a few years ago, this is really kind of a core story in my life, I was reading in Acts chapter 5 the story of Peter and his shadow is healing people. What a profound story. He's walking and they're laying out people in the streets and his shadow is healing people. And as Peter's walking by, people are getting healed from this. And I remember reading this passage and I'm going, how on earth do I get that? I just got to be honest with you. I'm a very pragmatic person. Uh, I, I'm thankful to see the miraculous and see a lot of that type of stuff. But I'm really pragmatic. It's just one of those things that I'm, I just never settled for. Well, the Bible says so. Just read it and believe it and shut up. Right? Well, because God said so. That didn't work for me. I had to figure it out. So I'm reading this. And I'm looking through this. And I'm going, Peter, how on earth 
did you get your shadow to heal somebody? So, like any good American, right, I'm going to look for the formula. So what's the formula? What did Peter do right? So as I'm flipping through the pages, all I see is that Peter doesn't do anything right, and I'm radically confused, because what Peter does is he tries to walk on water, and he sinks. That Peter doesn't understand the parables, and Jesus rebukes him, and Peter cuts off a guy's ear. No one swings for an ear, right? Peter, I mean, think about that. And no one, like, cuts off a guy's ear with a smile on his face either. You're not like, well, here, no, like, he's trying to kill a man, okay? Peter is trying to kill a man. Peter denies Christ to a schoolgirl calling curses down on himself. Now, I'm completely confused because I see Peter, here's Peter, who is kind of shadow healing people, and on the other side, I'm seeing Peter that doesn't get anything right. The one time he gets something right, Jesus says, good job, you didn't really get the answer on your own, though. So... I go back to Acts, and I'm frustrated because I'm flipping through the pages, and I'm like, okay, this, this isn't adding up because, goodness sakes, if I feel like I don't read my Bible every day, I feel completely condemned. I know I'm not the only one. I feel like if I don't pray for a certain amount of time, I feel like God has removed himself from me. I feel like if I don't sing loud enough or worship loud enough or do some sort of thing on my end, then God's not involved. And here's Peter who doesn't get anything right. And to this day, at least, other than some friends of mine, no one's told me, get behind me, Satan. Right? And as I'm reading this, I felt like my life, and maybe you feel like your life is kind of sandwiched between that time, between what God did in Acts and what he's going to do in the book of Revelation and that good old chunk of time called church history where God just went on a couple thousand year vacation. He occasionally throws us a little bone here and there to let us know that he's alive, but realistically, until the end times comes, then he's just kind of absent. You know what I mean? Sure, he answers prayer, but that's just to kind of let us know he's still in control, like he hasn't totally let go. And as I'm reading that, I'm finding myself disheartened looking at this passage of Peter. In that moment, Peter is the voice of a booming law that you'll never be enough. That you'll never do what somebody else has done. Have you felt like that? Have you met anyone like that? But as I'm reading this passage, the Holy Spirit speaks into my heart and simply says, Jared, you're reading the passage the wrong way. And I think any of us who are you know, learned in the Bible or taken a hermeneutics class, you know that if you hear a voice telling you you're reading the Bible the wrong way, you're supposed to be leery of the voice, not the Bible. Right? So I am looking at this thing and the Holy Spirit in a moment says, Jared, you're reading this the wrong way. You're looking at what was good inside of Peter. This isn't about Peter. This is about what was overshadowing him, and he was transparent enough to let it flow through him without him getting in the way. When that hit me, it completely transformed my life because what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that God is more interested in reaching this world than you do have the capability or ability to stop him. That God's grace and power to flow through you and move through you to reach your world for him 
is stronger and bigger than your ability to mess it up. That's really good news. I know some of you wish you would have stayed home and had brunch, but let me just tell you just a few minutes how good this news is. That God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. It doesn't say that he reconciled himself to the world as if God was angry. See, this is, this is what happens. We can turn Christianity on its head into a religion it's never supposed to be. Let me explain it like this. On one side of the cosmos is God, the Father. And God is perfect. God's holy and just. And on this side is man separated from him by sin. And God now can't look at them. And so what we do is that we construct this game. Do you remember red light, green light? I love that game. I never won. Ever. I'm just jittery as a person. I just am. But, and I'm also an aggressive driver if you see me leaving the parking lot. But the moment I moved to New York, it was like a spirit came over me. Pennsylvania, I was like, everything's good. I come to New York, instantly I'm like, I'm an aggressive driver and I like this. I'm totally kidding. If you work for Allstate, don't quote me on that, all right? It was a total accident the other day. No pun intended. Um, the, uh, pun intended. Okay. All right, here's the red light, green light game. God's on one side, man's on one side over here. And what I do is through my religious fervor, I make my way to God. And I stop certain behaviors. Okay, I know to stop that. But I've got to keep praying. And I stop. Ooh, don't touch that. And I begin to work my way to God. But like red light, green light, what happens is every time I mess up, where do I start? Back at the beginning. So that my job and my goal as a Christian then becomes, how can I string together enough days of perfection for God to finally like me, love me, use me, etc. But that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. See, Christianity is not about us coming to God. It's God coming to us in Christ. It's not about me making my way to God. It's not about me ascending a holy hill, climbing up through my religious fervor and dedication, and sooner or later, I'll strike together enough days of perfection that God can't deny this perfect formula. Right? Is anyone? Okay, I'm the only one here. That's all right. This is all I'm preaching on, so if you're waiting for me to crescendo, like it's, it's still to come, but just, okay. We... We, we try to construct this, this place that's irresistible to God. So if we have the perfect worship, if the songs are perfect, if they're in a minor key, so we get chills, right? Love that B minor 7, it just gets you every time. But if we can just sing the perfect song, if, if Pastor Zach would just preach the perfect message, if everything would just kind of collide there, then we feel like this ceiling would split. God would descend for like a few minutes and we'd go, that was a good church service, and then he'd leave. If we could construct the perfect formula, but the perfect formula is really simple, it's Jesus. Perfect sim- the perfect formula is You can't do anything on your own. You couldn't get to God, not on your worst day, on your best day. There's nothing in us that can make our way to him in my own flesh. All I can do is nothing, but in him I have everything. But yet, church, Christianity's flipped this thing on its head. And it's hilarious to me because we we, we even mess this thing up from the time we're young. So you ask your kids, like, what did you learn and what did you learn in um, Sunday school? And, you know, today, well, I learned, you know, about David and Goliath. 
And I learned that David was this, you know, expert marksman and that he was diligent and he fasted and he prayed and he had everything right. Well, how do you teach a first and second grader that, well, David is an adulterer? (laughs) Come on. Watch, watch this, though. Track with me here just for a few moments, okay? How do you, what do you come, what would you do if your kids came home and you're like, what did you learn about? I'm talking about little. I'm not talking about once they're a teenager because we still moralize everything. But watch this. When, when, a, when, we, when a little kid comes home, we're like, well, we learned about David who was watching Bathsheba, which is a strange name, but, you know, her looks overcame it, thankfully, right? But she's, here she is bathing naked on a rooftop, and David is so full of lust that he premeditates, how can I kill this guy so that I can marry him, right? Or marry her. Sorry, I got that one wrong. That's a whole nother Bible story. (laughs) David, though, what would you do? Your kid comes home. And we're like, yep, so that was what I learned today. And God said he was a man after his own heart. So what's the moral of the story? So the moral of the story for David is if you kill somebody, right? And if you are so full of lust that you actually do something about it. I'm not talking about Instagram, Facebook, whatever, where you're like, oh, wow. No, I'm talking about you're so full of lust that you act on it. What's the moral of the story there? See, we have moralized these lessons and these people, and they become the voice of a booming law that you'll never meet up, all together forgetting that all throughout the Old and New Testament, these are broken people that don't have things together, and yet we make excuses. So like Gideon hides in a wine press. He's so scared. Abraham is a son of an idol maker. Talk about a good credential who sells his wife momentarily to Pharaoh so that he can get some sheep. Turn to your spouse just for a moment, tell you love her, right? Just for a few moments, honey, act like you're my sister. Why? Because you're so pretty, I'd love to get rich off you. I tried that once with my wife, and it didn't, I'm kidding. All right, I didn't, I've tried that. I'm just like, baby, it's a free Coke, you know what I mean? We're going in, just, just pretend you're my sister and wink at him. No, do you realize you get slapped? I'm serious because we moralize these things and we make the hero of the Bible the individual people and we build this thing called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. It's not the Hall of Faith, it's the Hall of Grace. It's the grace of God. It's not about, well, Abraham was so victorious that he got everything together and he climbed up and he did this. No, he simply heard the word of the Lord, trusted, and God said yes and amen. We're in such danger as Christians, though, to turn something that's about the finished work of Christ into an unfinished work for ourselves. Have you ever felt like that? If I could just work a little, you know, like, what is it? I've just got this little area. If I could just overcome this little thing, then God would come. And maybe you hear me today, and please don't uh, uh, preach a different sermon than I'm preaching. I'm not preaching some sloppy grace that does nothing and just sits around and gets fat and doesn't do anything and is just happy, clappy. No, I'm preaching a sloppy grace of a murdered Savior that says it's finished, that says you don't have to finish it 
anymore. That you don't have to try to work harder or stress harder. And that you don't have to try to make him happy. He's radically pleased in his son, Jesus Christ. And that when you begin to walk in this paradigm and understand your identity as a Christian, your job and your responsibility is not to wake up in the morning and make God happy. Yeah, you can say amen. I get you on stage with me. That's good. Our job is not to wake up in the morning and somehow, as if it's like every day, you know, like I had a fight with God last night and I kind of like worked my way over. I'm like, hey, Lord, did you see how many chapters of Psalms I read? Yep, just reading through the Bible in one year. Made it through Leviticus. God knows you made that one difficult. Thanks. Still didn't understand it, but I got through it. Right? Come on, I prayed for somebody other than myself today. We kind of work our way to him and just in time to feel good about ourselves because the truth is what most of the time we're doing is just trying to massage Jesus into ourselves to make ourselves feel a little better because we just lack confidence. We're not trying to work our way to God. The gospel is that God comes to us and says, rest, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The cost of discipleship is everything, but it's already been paid. And if we're bearing a burden this morning, if you're carrying something in here, trying to please God, let me possibly offend you and hopefully free you at the same time, you're not serving the God of the Bible. You're serving the God of your imagination. If the God, yeah, it was funny. I thought it was funny too. If we're, if we're trying to do that though, the God of the Bible, you're worshiping, you've created your own liturgy and shaped a God who's not actually there. And I'm an atheist according to those terms because I don't believe that he exists. The God that I believe in and I hope that you believe in is the God that comes to us unconditionally in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. While we're sinners. And it's not like he just bails us out and then he goes, okay, like I'm going to pay off your debt and now it's your job to pay me back the rest of your life. No, that's not what this is. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Some of us, though, we, we flip that thing around. So it's like the gospel is kind of like we're having a rough day and, and the lifeguard comes. That's Jesus. He swims out to us and he carries us to shore. And he's like, okay, have a good life now. You know, on back to your thing. Like, you're, you know, you were lost there for a few minutes. No, 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 no. The gospel is CPR to our dead soul. And this is offensive because what it says is that my unrighteousness, that's good news for the sinner. But your unrighteousness means nothing before the Lord. But that's incredibly offensive for the religious. Because your self-righteousness means absolutely nothing before the Lord. Let me change gears here very quickly now in terms of empowerment. This Peter guy we were talking about just a few moments ago, whose shadow is healing people. This wasn't a one-time accidental, like, 
you know, stitching that God did in humanity just for a moment. Like, oh, I'm going to insert this story because I think it's for awe, shock, and wonder. No, he's trying to teach us something because this Peter who gets everything wrong, who's trying to call down fire from heaven because people won't listen to his little evangelistic presentation. Isn't that funny? That's not really funny. It's kind of scary. But could you imagine you come home and you find your friend, your spouse, your brother, like in this deep intercession, you're like, What's going on, man? What are you praying about? Well, they didn't listen to me today when I shared the gospel. I'm just praying that God smites them with fire and consumes them completely. You'd be like, Mom, I don't think everything's okay with my brother. I love it because the apostles act out what we think about. (laughs) They just do what we think about. The guy that calls down fire from heaven, this guy that messes everything up, is the same person in Acts chapter 3 who sees this man at the temple gate called Beautiful who's crippled from birth and he's seated outside of this temple which I think is this beautiful picture of where the church is at because here we are as a church trying to figure out how I can make a church service more conducive to the world outside of me, right? So let me say this, you can never make a handicap ramp as accessible enough for the brokenness of sin. So we've got people seated. The world is sitting right outside of the church asking the church a question. And it doesn't even know how to ask the right question. Have you ever been around somebody or maybe just think back to your past before you came to Christ that you didn't even know how to articulate the question to ask? You didn't even know how to say, like, tell me about Jesus or what is this whole thing about? And this world is crippled right outside the church and all it asks for is what? Do you have some money? And I have to say this, I believe that we are in danger as a church of just watering this thing down, that we are another half-broken social justice organization that really can't get our act together. I hope that sinks in. We organize something. Feel, feel, feel me just for, well, don't feel me. I get, I'm a little creepy about that. But just feel this with me. The church is not a social justice organization. We are the body of Christ engaged in social justice, yes. We're not just another organization that rallies together with our meeting together and then leaves. And that is how the world views us. If you serve in any type of capacity here at the church, or I'm sure you've experienced this, you find people that get upset and when you, they, you can't meet their needs. Well, I asked the pastor for money and he didn't give me any money. Try that with your neighbor, first of all. That's what the church is here for. The church is here to pay my bills. No, well, the church is happy to do that under certain circumstances. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're supposed to do that. But, well, the church didn't do this, and that's what they're supposed to do. Or the church doesn't have a soup kitchen. The church doesn't have a compassion ministry. The church doesn't have this special, you know, knitting group on Thursday afternoons. And that we just kind of take the mission of the church and pull it down into just another social justice or another pet doctrine institution that simply says, what do you have to give to me? How are you going to fix me? And Peter looks at him, and I love this because he takes away every excuse as Christians Silver and gold do not have. If I had a dollar, 
every time I heard a church leader, a pastor, or a Christian say, we don't have enough money, first of all, I'd be rich and I could help them, which would be nice. But the point is this. Peter takes away the excuse, silver and gold, I don't have it. But what I have, what do I have? What do I possess? What do you possess? What does Access Church possess right now? The power to change the world. What I don't have, I can't give you. What I do have, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And the scripture in Acts 3 says that he lifts him up and strength comes into his ankles. And he's leaping and praising the Lord and he comes into the church. What I'm trying to say this morning is that it's wonderful and we need to be on mission to bring friends into this building. But we can't expect that this city is going to breach by them stumbling in here on their own. Well, I just think if, uh, you know, if we can just spend enough money on something, then everyone will show up and instantly become a Christian. That's not how a city's changed. A city has changed when individual Christians understand and they throw away all the excuses. I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, this is what God has given me in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the answer. This isn't just another social help. Here's some money. No, we're going to the root cause of this sin, this brokenness, this paralysis, bringing healing to it. Now come into the church, and the scripture says, and the city surrounded them. And you know what I love? Is that as they're beginning to cling on to Peter and John in Acts 3, they look at them and they go like this, or they start to freak out. And Peter says, men of Israel... Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? This happened so that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would glorify your servant Jesus Christ in your midst. I love that because I see churches that are addicted to the wrong thing. I see Christians that are worshiping the wrong thing, addicted to the wrong thing, seeking a solution they already have. If I had a little bit more power, if I had a little bit more godliness, then I could fix the city. What I'm here to say today, though, is that you already have everything you need to transform this world today. That would have been a really decent time to say amen. I feel like I just foreclosed on your home. I really do. I was like, I'm sorry, we're going to be taking away your home with great regret. No, you have the power to change the world. And this isn't just some religious jargon that that it's not about you trying to bolster. If I could get a little more power, if I could get a little more godliness, if we could get a little bit. No, you already have what you need today in Christ. You are complete. You are sealed. You are risen in him. And maybe that's just too good to believe, and I'm sorry, that's not my problem. If it's too good to be true, then it is what it is. They're brought before the religious leaders, and if I could have the worship team come forward here, um, and whenever you can make your way here, brought before the religious leaders into the next chapter, and they're, they're grilling Peter and John, and I love it. You're not allowed to heal people. I love that. That's like me yelling at somebody, like, you're not allowed to fly to space with those two arms you have. It's like... I don't know how to do it either. Why, why do I get to control it? You know, it doesn't make any sense. You're not allowed to heal them. And the scripture says this, and, and they looked at them, and they were stunned. They were surprised. They were amazed. They were kind of like, what in the world? Like, you know, because if you heard, um, you know, that, that some miracle would take place, we kind of have this superhero syndrome in the church, right? They're just plugging in guitars. It's, they do this all the time. You can look at me. Sorry. 
Everyone's on there walking to the behind him. I'm sorry, I see everyone's faces, and I'm, I told you I'm scattering. I never won a game. But they, they're, they're stunned. They look at them, and they, and they simply say this, that they took note that they were uneducated, ordinary men. Have you ever run into somebody? It typically takes place at Walmart. Just telling you. It typically takes place at Walmart. Where after you close the door, right, you get in the car and you close the door, and the first thought, the first words out of your mouth to the person beside you is, they're uneducated and an ordinary person. That's a very polite way of saying that they don't have anything together. You're an uneducated, ordinary person. And what I find fascinating in these two chapters is that in just two chapters, the scripture comes like a wrecking ball and just destroys every excuse imaginary. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough godliness. I don't have enough education, and I'm not extraordinary enough. I'm just ordinary. And the gospel comes into that law, that booming voice of law that you're never enough, that you can never live up to, that you don't have it together. And the gospel comes and destroys that and simply says, it's finished. That this whole story that God is writing in human history and in your family and in this city and this region... The story that he's weaving together is is actually the end of the day. It takes place when, when you and I together recognize, you know what? It's really not about how powerful we are. Would you just get ready to sing Jesus be the center of it all if it's okay? It's 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 not it's not about enough power I woke up on the right side of the bed it's not about are we educated enough it's not about if we're extraordinary enough and it's amazing because if you take a local church you can typically divide it into those four quadrants we have our people that are saying we just need to be more godly and listen how many would agree there's nothing wrong with godliness there's nothing wrong with it But we need, the the way we're going to reach this city is that we're going to fast and pray for the next 365 days. We're going to speak in tongues until our tongue falls out. Right? That's the way. We're going to do, we're going to scream out loud until our lungs explode. God resurrects us and we'll change the city. And there are people like that in, in this building. They're everywhere. And they're good people. We need them. And they're in this one quadrant that if we were just more godly and another, we just got to get more power. We got to get out there and do it. Then there's the people that we, we just need to understand the Bible a little bit more. Let's talk about 2 Timothy and the deceit of the last days. And if we can understand the people that are trying to worm their way into different households, then we'll figure it out, right? And we're the teachers. And then we're the people that are like, if we could just be extraordinary. And that when people came in, they would just be like, that was the best hour of my life. Right? Until you go to the movies and you realize we can't compete. And there's these four quadrants, these booming voice of the law that says, if we just did this, and, and, and like a 
just beautiful voice comes in and just says, it's finished. That all of those things in and of themselves are good. It's not that they're bad. It's just the fact that they don't have the power in and of themselves to deliver what we're looking to them from. Would you stand with me? My hope this morning is to call you to a place of worshiping Jesus. That it's finished. If you're anxious this morning, I can't finish the race. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough strength. The good news is you already crossed the finish line. You know? You made it. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's a good God. Sometimes, though, we play this bait and switch with people. It's like the gospel's good news before you get in the church. And then once you get in the church, it kind of becomes bad news, right? I know it was rhetorical. You don't have to say anything back, but it's true. It's like God loves you and has this amazing plan for your life. And and God wants to save you and love you. And, And it's like, wow, this is great. And then the moment you get into the relationship, you're like, everything's great. And you realize, oh my gosh, this is the most controlling relationship I've ever been in. And now I can't get out because they're threatening hell. It's true. And, and we get into this, and it, it's kind of weird, but like spiritual maturity becomes like the more depressed you look, it's like, wow, he's really mature in the Lord. Yeah, he's, he's under a burden this week. You know, he's really like, he's suffering for the gospel. It's like, no, you, you know, like just... I, I, it's good news. It's freeing. Weird thing, though. My wife and I, uh, one of her friends was walking through a divorce, and I, I, I want to be sensitive because I, I'm not uh, making any blanket statements, but it's interesting because I feel like more people are in this situation than, than we expect. But they, they, they wanted to get a divorce, but they couldn't because um, it would cost them more to get divorced than to stay married financially. That they wanted to get a divorce, but they couldn't do it, so they're kind of in this halfway thing. And I thought to myself, when my wife said, yeah, so-and-so is walking through this, I thought, that's the church, that's Christians. The truth is, they really would want to separate from this whole thing, because they're, they're in bed with church and Jesus and the whole thing. But at the end of the day, it, they realize it costs them more to walk away than just to stay, so I'll just kind of sit and sleep in bed, kind of disengaged and unhappy, but... I don't want to walk away and it hurt other, other people. You know what I mean? I don't want it to cost me something. So it costs less to stay a Christian than not to be one. That's not what God wants for us. He, he wants us to have an abundant life. An abund- a, a life of fullness, joy. Amen? Amen.